0: now I felt because we are not together and there's a fragility in the team, morale is down, the people are scared. I needed to communicate to give that reassurance.
1: Welcome to Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Ears, the podcast where we talk with renowned experts from around the world about the impact they're making on the future of medical technology. Today, managing board member Dr. Christoph Sindel interviews Dr. Sahih Fayed, who serves as professor of radiology and medicine at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. As a researcher, he's one of the world leaders in the development and use of multimodality cardiovascular imaging. They begin discussing the experience of COVID-19 preparedness at Mount Sinai as the virus swept New York in early January 2020.
2: Let me start off uh, with the first question, Sahih. You are based in New York City, and I think New York City was hit hard already at the beginning of the pandemic. Can you describe the development in New York during the past, let's say, months and weeks, and uh, how it is also from your perspective in the US in general?
0: I have, a, you know, a lot of data to share with you on what happened to us uh, in New York and Mount Sinai because we have been hit quite hard, and our institution. Have really taken an incredible preparation that even much before the first patient was really identified in New York City, because the leadership felt that uh, there is trouble brewing across uh, the, the 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 ocean. They obviously don't want to be caught in the middle of this without preparedness. So, since I have, I'm also part of the leadership of Mount Sinai. You know, I became aware of uh, the preparation that really started, believe it or not, uh, January 7, 2020. With the establishment of an emergency, I forget the name of the committee, but they put together basically a task force to start uh, looking at this closely, to start putting together even the screening tools that we have and update them to be prepared for the infection. This was January 17, where these tools became um, uh, updated. January 27, the first case was identified, uh, 21st, excuse me, was identified in the U.S. And Mount Sinai did the first town hall meeting about COVID-19, February 7. Because we've done on January 29, A week before that, we've done an internal drill for COVID-19. So we wanted to, or the institution wanted to communicate what we are doing. And then the the first case was identified in New York uh, State, was February 29. And Sinai began, obviously, the conversion of the ICUs early March to COVID ICUs. And our first admitted patient was March nine. The first admitted patient to Mount Sinai, COVID positive. And you know, I'm not going to you know, get a lot more into the detail, but a couple of, of dates and an inflection point during that timeline was the shutdown or the in March 22nd, the New York basically instituted that pause. And we at Mount Sinai started to put together a couple of days before, started to put together all the precautions in terms of in-house testing, visitor restriction, universal masking, contingency plans, you know, for the N95, and halting elective procedures. And we began not only halting uh, the hospital um, care, but we also started to shut down the labs, which means my institute, you know, our servers, our research have all started to shut down starting from that March 17.
2: I see. So, so you reacted uh, super early, right? And very consequently.
0: I think our institution definitely have put in early discussion on it really early on and to be prepared because it hit us really hard. I mean, I can go over some of the numbers with you. And just so you, you, you realize that we, we've, test, we've had so far over 7,000 Covid positive patients from the March nine up to today, the median age is in the sixty five, and uh, with obviously you know comorbidities as we know them, with an in hospital mortality of of nineteen percent during the top of the pandemic, which I would say could be April four, we have had over two thousand Covid positive patient in our hospital systems. So 700 in the main hospitals, and then the rest distributed, because we are about eight hospital systems distributed in there. So you can imagine the whole hospital which is a COVID hospital with 2,000 patients in a single day. Incredible um, uh, hit. We, we've taken an incredible, obviously, effort a lot of things were happening around us you know obviously very creative ways uh, to to procure supplies i believe there was a plane chartered by one of our uh, board of trustees in coordination with the hospital to fly to china to get some ppe's to bring back so we were obviously working with the state but at the same time we as an institution were using all our resources to try to gather what we need Uh, in order for us to sustain or to to be prepared for all this.
2: I think this was even in the press, right, that you charted this plane and uh, you got into the PPE. I I remember this, yeah.
0: One other tidbit, which I think was also obviously uh, discussed in the press but is interesting, is the construction of this open field hospital in Central Park, just in front of Mount Sinai, to help with the patient. This was started, I think this opened, was April 1st and stayed with us from April 1st until basically May. Incredible sight just to see this. Basically, you're, you're living war. You know, you have a, a hospital in the field in Central Park in front of Mount Sinai. Unbelievable sight to see. Um, so, so this is what we lived. This is the life we had during you know, these months.
1: Mount Sinai is one of the largest teaching hospitals in the United States, employing over 50,000 people how do you protect such a large group of individuals when a contagious virus is on the loose?
2: How did you manage the health of the employees, let's say the healthcare workers, right, and the entire staff? I mean, you said now you organized PPE very quickly uh, or as quickly as possible. There was a shortage. I recall this global problem. But uh, what, what else did you do? Maybe not only uh, protecting them from the virus, but also in terms of mental health, right? I mean, it's a psychological stress, right?
0: one of the projects that uh, that I initiated to evaluate the effect of stress on our healthcare workers. so so this is now um, you know the shutdown and and what did we do? Number one, to make sure at our our um, uh, we are in line with the institution in terms of uh, procedures. We shut down the lab in the proper way in the safe manner, but also while at the same time continuing, Uh, some of the urgent or necessary uh, kind of services. So the shutdown meant that really we had to send almost everybody home. We, in a way, uh, shut down the basic science laboratories as well as the clinical research laboratory Mm -hmm. and asked everybody to work from home, worked with them to make sure everybody is properly equipped in order to do this. But at the same time, since we are also our, our center or our institute, uh, does deliver research care. And there were some certain type of protocols that were non-COVID, but necessary. Let's say you're undergoing uh, cancer treatment, and you need to get that that imaging exam, um, and it's part of your research because there's a mixture between clinical care and research. So we kept some of that ongoing, and we had to support that. Uh, while at the same time equipment everybody with all the tools in order to do this. The second thing we have done, we've converted uh, some of the basic research or some of the research from non-COVID to COVID, and we kept some of these labs open. So my group, uh, with in collaboration with another faculty member, you know, we do uh, what we call nanomedicine or nanotherapeutic, which means using mm-hmm. nanomedicine to treat in a targeted fashion the disease. So some of the things that we're working on are related to the immune system. So we've converted and we started to look at how we could repurpose some of that research that we we're doing in the immune system in non-COVID and how to convert it into COVID research and initiated you know, animal as well as imaging protocols related to that research.
1: From the perspective of a research hospital, shifting your research focus during a pandemic is a monumental undertaking. Securing new funding requires a fresh way of thinking.
2: I find non-COVID-19 research projects to convert to a certain extent into COVID-19 projects. Uh, you refer to the nanomedicine, right, and, and the immune system, which is fantastic in my point of view. With support from government, NIH, funding, how could you easily convert also funding and could you get support from the institutions?
0: Yeah, so so I would say the biggest support we have gotten is really thanks to our donors and our board of trustees who raised money specifically to help during the crisis, not only to help in the hospital operation, but also to help in the research in order for people to innovate. And there are a lot of examples. And Sinai has been a leader in infectious disease, in the, in the immune system, and many, many projects. So it's really also what created for us is obviously a new opportunity since you, you know, we're not able to pursue our usual research. So we did, like a lot of people, we started to think about new grants. Uh, so continuing what we're doing, but we're spending more time writing. So a lot of applications have been sent and will be sent. But what I found uh, more interesting from my point of view is now getting into this COVID research, which means that now there is an interesting technical problem, which is a very complex problem with a lot of new biology and a new science to be discovered. And it also gave us the opportunity to kind of organize ourselves. And to implement some of the vision that we had talking about gathering big data and putting data sets together that are well-harmonized, well-curated, have an incredible communication between the hospital clinicians and our research team. So it really gave us this common goal and a common fight. It's a little bit like, you know, what you do if you're in the army. I think also you probably maybe identify you as a, as a company. You probably can line up the troops across a common goal. You know, in, in, in an academic institution, you know, I will say in general, people, you know, you have a creative idea, fine, I'll, I'll put together a small team. But here I really felt that we have the attention of the whole medical centers, great experts in radiology great clinicians delivering care to COVID patients in pulmonary and respiratory diseases, great immunologists, great data scientists, all gathered now to think about how we can leverage the data that we have and how we can create tools to better understand the disease and to be better prepared for the future.
2: I have to say, right, we have a cultural Principle, where we say a day without passion in healthcare is a lost day. And when I listen to you, I can really hear out the passion, right? And this is, um, I think, it's also a very important attribute for a leader: convincing people and uh, motivating people through even such tough times, right? So that's impressive.
0: There's a little bit of a therapeutic angle to yourself to it, because we're all—I mean, we all have been faced, you know, with all this fragility with all that, all these stressors, right. it put us in a very uncomfortable situation. You're not in the office anymore. Uh, you're not interacting in the same way. So I, I really think, you know, a lot of us uh, have channeled that fragility into these projects, working as a group and fed on each other to support each other to aspire to to better things. I really think we've all used that to also help ourselves.
1: During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, many industries shifted to working from home. Up to 90% of the Mount Sinai staff were able to work away from the hospital.
2: Do you want to keep it that way or do you believe it can even let's say, prevent innovations because people are no longer in the coffee kitchen, they don't talk to each other right on the hallways and so on. How how do you see
0: that? So, uh, Christoph, it's interesting that the past two leadership meetings that we've had, uh, we have been debating this exactly, these questions. We've all learned that you could work from home, right? That a lot of things, you know, you could be efficient, you could solve problems, etc. But there's also a thinking that is this something you would do long term? Will it have a deleterious effect on productivity, on innovation, on mental, etc.? I don't think we know. I mean, I, I, really, I, mean, I really don't know if, if this would be the model to follow because we can, I don't think we've measured uh, the, the endpoints uh, well to, to see what did happen? But I do feel people do need to be next to each other to innovate. There a lot of these spontaneous conversations that lead to a discovery or to a concept. There are a lot of ways that you could solve. You could solve problems much quicker than now you do, because now everything is structured. You cannot call somebody. Everybody's on a Zoom call. It has to be structured. You know, In the past, as you know, people knock on your door. Yes, do this, do that, done. We've had really two, two debates, uh, two, two meetings where people are debating, saying, Oh, no way, this is not the way to go. I, I, I cannot live like this. My students are not, you know, I need to communicate with them, et cetera. I have a feeling that we may do a mixture of both. Exactly. Uh, right. We may learn that we may choose two days, one day a week, we can handle the Zoom. But I have a feeling what I think the biggest impact is going to be probably on travel on conferences i have a feeling people realize that some of these meetings to fly across the the ocean to meet with a client in your case or to give a 5 minute talk and then waste time at the airport uh, jet lag inefficiencies could be done via zoom very well and there could be some conferences where you feel you'll pick not, not even you will pick and choose when you want to be present virtually, and one you want to be present in person.
1: While the COVID-19 pandemic has shaken the world, situations like these can also offer valuable insights. It can inspire innovation and accelerate progress.
2: Are there innovations in the medical science uh, that have been triggered or even accelerated uh, by the pandemic? What what do you think?
0: Very much, very much. I mean, I I can tell you a few things that resonate well uh, for us, the aspect of uh, big data. You know, we all talk big data. We're all talking, you know, but everybody, somebody said something, is something you, it's like sex, right? You talk about it, but you don't know how to do it or something like this, you know, but, but really, I, I really think it, it forced us here, number one, to accelerate data access, to break down the barrier in terms of creating HIPAA compatible data sets and being able to mine them much faster than what what we were doing at Mount Sinai. So right now, what COVID showed us that if you give us access to this data, we can provide an environment where we can mine the data in a way that is extremely productive. So breaking down these silos, get security, IT clearance, get all your approvals, and put it together. So we 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 currently have over you know you know we we've been focusing a lot on the COVID data set over ten thousand plus patients and subjects uh, in our database now, where we are merging the clinical data, the notes, the imaging data, the lab data, the genomics data, all under one set. So we've had couple of examples like this at Mount Sinai, but they were very narrow and incomplete. So now we really have demonstrated that if you really want to do it, you can, but you have to line up the institution behind you, the, the regulatory aspect, the hospital aspect. So that's one thing I learned. The second thing I learned, Christoph, which has been a little bit of a revelation, but maybe it's my, my, my naivete, I have not given a lot of thought to the need of the hospital in a real-time basis, right? A lot of the things we do in research, you know, we acquire data, we get a big data set, take us in some time, years, years to do, we analyze the data, and then we say, oh, yeah, this is what it can do. But you don't realize that at the hospital, the needs are so different, and the needs are incredibly, you know, basically dynamic and important. So right now, because of our collaboration within the COVID um, informatics center that we created, the hospital is now have a seat at the table and is one of the most important partners. So now we are working with them hand in hand. So they expose to us all the data that they have, and they are obviously very data rich. And we work as we call it, we work in the research environment, always thinking about how we are going to package this tool that we have and throw it across the fence back to the hospital so they can go into immediate deployment. The hospital is all about deployment. They love deployment. And we've learned so much from them. So right now I will say that my research and moving forward, you know, as I'm thinking of how I'm going to design my research in the future, I will be definitely partnering with the hospitals. Not everything makes sense with a hospital, but, but I think we will be very much in a better shape if we always keep that in the back of our mind and keep that part of, the, part of the seat at the table.
2: It's super powerful what you're describing in terms of data integration and the power of data, right? I mean, this can be all used beyond COVID-19
0: our goal right now is we are still working under that covid informatics center but we know that after the pandemic this informatics center is going to remove the name covid and will become basically an entity that will integrate all data for research and for basically uh, testing hospital needs in real time so that so, so that's one lesson number 1 which was in a way i have to say maybe maybe a a hospital uh, folks would be listening to me and saying, where have you been? You know, I mean, why why haven't you been tuned to that? Well, I recognize, you know, that I have not been, and now I am. The second part really, um, uh, Christoph, is the aspect of point of care or collecting data remotely without touching a patient and collecting data 24 hours if you can. So I really think Anything you could do with wearables or things that you expose the patient in their own environment or during the day is going to become extremely important. And I can talk to you about a project that we implemented, which we call it the Warrior Watch. And the Warrior Watch is basically that Apple watch that you see me here. I'm one of the, one of the members where now we can measure all kind of parameters this watch can you know tell you how many steps you've taken what were your sleep pattern what is your heart rate variability which as you know is a very important measure of understanding if somebody's even inf- being exposed to disease or to stress and at the same time deploying apps on a cell phone everybody carries this phone and using the app number one to consent a patient to a clinical study so now I don't need a coordinator to see you face-to-face and to now I can do this e-consenting. The patient can give me parameters on a daily basis after a survey, three-second survey. Do they have any symptoms of COVID? Have they been in touch with other people? I can also interrogate them on their quality of life and understand their perceived stress score. Very simple instruments that take Take 50 seconds to survey and collect that data on top of the watch and now trying to understand two things. Can we detect infection before it occurs? And there have been people trying to do, use similar methodologies to do this. And we talk, We just talked about this. What has been the exposure or the effect of stress on you? So we deployed this uh, over now 300 plus uh, Healthcare worker, we're trying to get up to 1,000, and we're trying to answer these two questions. Early infection detection and the effect on the mental aspect, the mental aspect of stress. Mount Sinai, in parallel, have created two things to treat and to look at uh, COVID patients. They're looking at COVID recovered patients. A lot of these patients have sequela in the lungs, sequela in the heart, sequela in the blood, kidneys, etc., that disease... Hit them. They may have recovered, they recovered, but there is an end organ effect. So Mount Sinai created a post COVID center and they've also created a center for resilience.
2: So and you get a pretty good understanding about how these patients convert into chronic patients, let's say.
0: Yes. And we are hoping, we propose to the NIH a large study and we're waiting to hear from them. We're in discussion right now with them to try to see. How can we use basically imaging entities like CT imaging, PET imaging, MRI imaging to try to understand the end organ effect while at the same time also deploying all other biomarker tools and other classical clinical assessment in our patients. But our, our clinicians, I mean, I, I talk on a daily basis to, to Cap Powell, you know, who, as you know, you know, the head of our respiratory uh, he's a, he's a Siemens uh, friend uh, and collaborator, as you know. But Cap is also deploying these tools at home. He wants to monitor the respiratory rate of these patients, the, the pulse ox, you know, the, the saturation of the blood at home, because this, the, these are markers that will be very important for early detection, but also to try to tell us when where, where, where trouble is. Yeah. yeah, I
2: mean, this was interesting when I had uh, this podcast with Dieter Ensman from UCLA because he said. Nicely, we are dealing with a new resource. This is the home of the patients. So it's really decentralization, decentralization of the, the, the healthcare system, let's say, where you guys get closer to the homes of the patients and can exactly do what you are describing to us. It's very fascinating, yeah.
1: The importance of global collaboration during the COVID-19 pandemic has proven crucial for success both in terms of prevention and of treatment.
2: So it's fair to say this pandemic pushed digitalization and data management, data utilization heavily forward, right? It's the same on our side. You might have heard about it. Uh, Germany, probably not known as the digital forerunner on the globe, but we uh, came also up with this crowd-based infection monitoring, COVID-19 application, right? So it's amazing what this traumatic pandemic on the other side has pushed so far.
0: So, Christoph, I have to give credit to Germany here with our uh, research. So we at Mount Sinai have, have now a Hassel-Platner Institute for Digital Health. We have a very strong connection with Potsdam University and with the Hassel-Platner Institute, which is a German institute. And there you're right. A lot of, lot of these projects that I talked about have actually a component from Germany in them uh, through our joint institute here. So so feel proud.
2: Thank you very much. I mean, this is a very uh, lovely statement, yeah, and of course makes me happy and wonderful segue into my next question. How important in your point of view, Zahi, is global collaboration, global cooperation for science during the pandemic? What does the actual trend, I mean, when you look to political systems currently worldwide, right, There is a kind of verticalization going on between the countries uh, and what does this mean for research? How, how how much globalization is needed for your research and also for fight the pandemic? Yeah,
0: I'll make a, you know a few points on this one. I mentioned to you obviously our Hasso-Platner Institute at Mount Sinai, which has obviously a connection with the Hasso-Platner Institute and, and University of Potsdam. We, we have many, many collaboration between the two groups, many students and leadership on both sides. So obviously that has helped us a lot in terms of implementation of these apps and, and some of this COVID research that we're doing. And this is the second one, which really brings me to the story of uh, how we got into this COVID research. And it really came about before the pandemic. I guess we were not aware of anything at the time was October of 2019. A group of us from Mount Sinai went to visit the hospital in West China. The interest there was to, we were talking about uh, TB, tuberculosis. We were talking about chest imaging, x-rays, and CTs. They are, they are very strong in, in that area. And we at Mount Sinai also have a very strong area in this. And we started to exchange data. So we had a, a data exchange agreement before the pandemic to do this. Now the pandemic hit. Uh, and I started to think about, you know, what's going on to our colleague in China. They said, look, you know, we have, you know, we have a lot of CT data coming our way. Will you guys be interested in through our research collaboration to get that data to try to see if you can make some meaningful inferences from it? And this year was like a, a treasure chest, right? So we were the first group in the United States to describe... On CT imaging, these features of, of COVID positive patients. We've, we've had a series of paper in radiology, and I just uh, just noticed David Blumke just wrote a nice summary of the COVID uh, uh, discoveries or COVID research, and, and we were featured very much on the top because, again, we had access through this international collaboration to this data. Number two, what we've done with this also, because they gave us a large data set. So we've had, you know, almost a thousand patients coming from them during that time. We didn't have much data at Mount Sinai yet. So remember, this is January, February. So we, we established now another uh, research uh, program with them. I have a great PhD student, Shiyan Mei, who's also Chinese, who, who comes also from that area. And she put together a beautiful research paper published in Nature Medicine that's described for the first time the importance of combining CT imaging and basic clinical data. I mean, really basic temperature, you know, symptoms, you know, some blood markers. And we demonstrated that using artificial intelligence, you are able to detect much better than a well-trained radiologist. And also combining the clinical data and the the CT data would also be better In cases where CT is normal, you know very well that this CT is not specific to COVID. But we've shown that you take the CT images, the clinical data, your CT is normal, but you are actually a COVID patient. So this has been incredible for us. And obviously, that collaboration led really now to all this work that we're doing on seven plus thousand patients at Sinai, where now we are exposing all the data so we are data rich we're using now sophisticated you know ai methodology and we're having a lot of fun i give credit to my collaborators in china who gave us access to that data
2: i mean this is an incredible statement uh, in favor of globalization because you couldn't have done this without globalization or simply being a vertical on the globe
1: When organizations discuss how they've adapted during COVID-19, one word that comes up frequently has been leadership. Poor leadership can expose cracks in the armor of our systems, whereas good leadership will highlight what's working.
2: Let's talk quickly about uh, leadership qualities. What is needed from your point of view to manage a crisis such as you have obviously done it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, we could talk, you know, a lot about this. And you're a great leader, Christoph. And I know from people working working with you, you are you're a teacher. But I mean, again, um, I, I've been very much inspired, you know, by people around me. So the leadership at Mont Sinai, being either our dean Dennis Charney, who took the helm uh, during that time, as well as the head of our hospital, David Rich many many leaders you know who were communicating endlessly who were really talking being prepared early on so really trying to think ahead communicate incredibly but really also leading by example so there's a lot of this aspect i think that they you know that they showed that you need to be aspirational and you need to be inspirational during that time you have to show what's going on you have to be transparent And you have to be a lot more sensitive also than than what you would maybe in general do, because people are now not only having problem from a professional point of view, but there's also people are scared because of what's going on around them. There's a lot of personal aspects ongoing here. I draw a lot from my own research, which, which, you know, some of it is focused on, on resilience, uh, and again, I, our dean, uh, Charney, is an expert in resilience. He's a psychiatrist. He writes books on the topic. But I I, I work, you know, I have projects that relate the cardiovascular system to, to stressors like chronic stress and PTSD. And I also draw a little bit on my personal experience, Christoph. I grew up uh, during the Civil War uh, in Lebanon when I was a child before we left to France. Reflecting back at it, you know, being obviously, you know, civil war is different than a pandemic, but there is a commonality of the uncertainty on a daily basis. And also on, on, on the aspect of being positive always, you know, never give up, right? Never, never give up the chip and never give up and always try to message, you know, the aspect of, uh, of positivity. So, so these are things, you know, that I had to make sure that I keep reminding myself and make sure that I, communicate back to the people that are surrounding me and the people who I'm, I'm interacting with, while well, at the same time, you know, being inspired and being being positive, you know, energy coming in, I'm seeing what the others are doing, you know, at the front line, as well as our leadership. So I, I give them a lot of credit. Yeah, So one of the things I kept telling people around me, you know, is that realize that you think you're running a 5K or half a marathon, but you're actually in a marathon. So really remember that, you know, just be, be careful. Uh, you know, you need, you need to pace yourself <laughs> properly. You, need, you know, you need to make sure, you know, you are communicating and you're thinking ahead as much as possible. Yeah.
2: I saw you when we communicated over the pandemic a couple of times. I saw you also in your um, exercise room. What do you do to keep in shape? I mean, the others cannot see you, but I can see you. And obviously, you are in very good shape. So what do you do?
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so again, again uh, I've been lucky to have always um, used uh, training and physical training to, to help me with my life. Uh, you know, so, so I've always turned to, to that space in order to, in a way, balance myself. But now, during the pandemic, it did create another level of need uh, to turn yourself uh, in, into, into being in shape. I'm also lucky that I built a home gym uh, over time because I, I, I use a very uh, a comprehensive training uh, regimen It's based on many things. You know, I used to run uh, a lot in the past and that was maybe my only go-to. But a few years ago, I changed a little bit this. So I'm more, what I would say, a very comprehensive training uh, regimen, you know, strength, endurance. You know, I tried to hit, you know, without going a lot into the detail, but I tried to hit all the energy levels. If you think about the pyramid of the different energies that you exhaust uh, during different uh, training regimens, but i've also learned that this is not only helping me mentally uh, but also physically but also you need to push yourself mentally because mental training uh, is is very important so i started to add a few things uh, to my training during pandemic i started to add what's called meet yourself saturday so meet yourself saturday is basically a program of training where you choose to pick something extremely hard that you know you won't be able to complete. You may, in a sense, fail halfway. And then you're doing something that you don't do during the week. Uh, So that's what I call meet yourself Saturday, which I think you push yourself to get outside that comfort zone. But I also try to do two things on top. I start to also get a little bit more on the technical aspect. So training with kettlebells, And trying to get, you know, get certification in kettlebell. So that's more technical. It's not meant, you know, but so you have to get more into that. So I started to add these technical training uh, on a daily basis to do better. And also with a barbell, you know, try to do better. Not that I'm a power lifter, which I'm not I don't I don't add a lot of weight, but you know, how to do a good form, you know, power clean, a snatch, and that requires lot of training sometimes even with a pvc pipe at the beginning so these things i added again more technical so i can you know amuse myself uh, a little bit more
2: <laughs> hey Sai, this has been super exciting and informative i think we could all learn from you a lot over the last uh, minutes yeah a big thank you again from my side yeah it is a great honor uh having you here in this, this podcast series yeah uh, again Pretty infectious how you conveyed the messages. And I think it was of high interest to the entire, it is of high interest to the entire community. Big thank you. And yeah, looking forward to meet you soon over a Bavarian beer or Franconian beer again. Sahih, yeah. take care and please stay safe.
0: Thank you so much. This this means a lot to me because we haven't been seeing uh, each other or many people. So that really brings you back uh, and, and me together. So I really appreciate uh, being able to do this. And obviously, learning also from you quite a bit over the years, and and I really want to thank you and 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 your team at Siemens Healthcare who have been extremely supported, by the way, to us during this time. So I have to also give them credit for being around d- during that time. Yeah.
2: Hey, super nice. This is very kind. I look forward to the next conversation with you. Yeah, always fun. Yeah, and thank you for your friendship. Thank you. Take care. Stay safe.
1: We'll wrap up today by reiterating the importance of good leadership and global communication through unprecedented circumstances like these. An open flow of information will ensure that our approach to beating the COVID-19 pandemic utilizes the most up-to-date data from across the globe. Thank you to Dr. Saeed Fayed for joining us today. And a big thank you to you, our listeners. This has been another episode of Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Healthineers. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts, rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time.